But gang, God is going to fetch His people. God is going to draw them back and He is going to reignite in them a spiritual love and a fervor for the Lord. They're going to love and recognize Him with that love in a way they have never loved Him before. You might say, well, when will this great return actually happen? Jesus tells us, Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The second coming of Jesus. After the tribulation. Seven years of decimation in the world. And the waking up of the Jewish people. And they will mourn. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 8 says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, which is why Bible scholars believe, and I agree with them, that only a third of Israel is going to make it through the tribulation. Two-thirds will be cut out, literally will will lose their lives, will be killed in the tribulation, but one-third, a remnant, will be saved. And that one-third will see Jesus coming in the, in the clouds of great power and glory. And they will turn to Him. They will rush to Him. Verse 9 says, I will bring the third part through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Bottom line, those who have turned their backs will turn back. And God will restore them again. And that is part and parcel of the land covenant. I've given you the land. You're going to be driven from the land, but I'm going to bring you back to the land. How do we turn back? How do we really turn back to the Lord when we've gone so far away? Look at verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven and get it for us? Make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us and get it for us? And make us hear it that we may observe it. It's what this, this lady, this sister in Christ who has been wandering for so long, so long said three weeks ago, I've been so far away. I don't know how to get back. Who's going to reach up to heaven and bring to me what I need? Who's going to reach across the sea and help me get there? And what would Moses say to her? The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. The word is so near. It's right there. Turn around. The word is there. Turn around. Jesus is there. Turn around. He's waiting for you. Verse 15, see I have set before you life and prosperity today and death and adversity. Moses has given the balance. Life, prosperity, death, adversity. It's your call. What do you want? Which one do you choose? He says, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and keep His commandments and statutes and judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, 
and you will not obey, but you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I declare, declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And this last section from verse 11 through verse 20 is so awesome, so wonderful, so packed with blessing, that we're going to have to wait until Sunday to really get into it. So let's go on. That, by the way, at the end of chapter 30, ends Moses' sermon. He's done. You almost hear the dust settle. You can see those who are really locked in, just thrilled. And you can see those who still don't get it, still going... But he's done. He's finished the sermon. And now in verse 1 of chapter 31, hang with me just a couple more minutes. It tells us, So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. He spoke this on his birthday. Happy birthday, Moses. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross this Jordan. He's saying, Today's my birthday. I've reached 120. And I don't have the strength I used to have. And I'm not able to get out much anymore. And so I am not going into the land in fact, verse 3, it says, It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua, Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. Now listen, and this is important. As a pastor, I love this. Every servant is expendable. Everyone who ministers for the Lord in any capacity is expendable. At least in terms of our acts of service. It doesn't mean that we're not loved. It doesn't mean we're not of vast eternal value to the Father. But our work of service is expendable. And I've discovered this in youth ministry. Years past. Built up a, a youth program at this particular church in California. Thriving, flourishing. It was in great shape. And I left there thinking, boy, I don't see how they're going to make this thing run without me. And it grew after I left. It did better. And I've watched this over the years in ministry, serving in a church and leaving and looking back and seeing that someone else just slipped right into the role and took it and ran with it. And I started to wonder over the years, boy, did you really need me, Father? Yes. Yes, he needed me. Yes, we're all called and needed in service. But we are also expendable. And here's Moses at the end of his life. And he says, hey, guess what? I'm not going any further. I'm done. But the journey's not over. You're still going in. And another is going to take my place. Another is going to step in. In other words, gang, there is always a Joshua. God's always got the next step, the next stage in the process, set and ready to go. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 Paul said, you know, there's jealousy and strife among you. You're fleshly. You're walking like mere men. And as an example, he says, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, 
And another says, I go to Christ the King. Another one says, I go to the bridge. He says, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? What is Christ the King? What is the bridge? You know I'm adding those in. Paul says they are servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave, op- gave opportunity to each one. He said, I planted, yeah. But Apollos, he watered. But God caused the growth. Therefore, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. And that's the deal. It's not Moses. It's not Joshua. Joshua, neither one of them or anything. It's God who leads the people. It's God who goes before And Joshua is going to be the new leader. And I'm excited, by the way, to finish Deuteronomy. We are real close. We will be done at the end of this month. And beginning in December, start the book of Joshua. (laughs) It's so cool. It's a great book. But there is always one gang who is there for us. One who crosses ahead before us. And let me just insert this comment. I'm so thankful that Jesus, our Joshua, our Yeshua, crossed ahead of us. I'm so thankful that he went to the cross for me and in my stead. Well, verse 4, the Lord will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. Verse 5, the Lord will deliver them up before you and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. And watch this, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you, nor will he forsake you. And Moses reminds the people of God's faithfulness and his judgments of the past against Sihon and Og and reminds them what they did to the Amorites when they came into the land, when they were traveling, reminds them that God protected them as they fought and and gave them victory. He reminds them of their past that they might hope in his faithfulness in their future. People tend to do one of two things. They tend to either live in the past or they live in the future. But very few people know how to live in the present. I just read this quote the other day. This is Mark Driscoll and he said, Christians are supposed to live today in light of yesterday for the sake of tomorrow. That's how we live today. In light of yesterday for the sake of tomorrow. If we can live in the light of yesterday, what we've learned, what we've seen, what the Lord has done, His faithfulness, we can live in faith for tomorrow that's how you live today now we've already looked at Israel's land covenant we've looked at America and and made that comparison we're able to look at Israel's past and understand what happened to them and apply it to where we are today which we've done with so much scripture what happened to Israel Paul says there are examples for us and so we can read and study and know the past so that we can know how to live today And that we might be prepared for where we're headed. And you know what's cool about this? You can only do that with the Lord. You can only look look back and forward so that you can live in the now with the Lord. Because He's the only one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. 100% consistent. So I can learn from the Lord who was. And I can look to the Lord who will be. And I can live with the Lord who is. Because He's in all three places. Jesus said in Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Paul tells us in Romans 11.29 that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. In other words, God is 
faithful. So Moses reminds the people of God's faithfulness and strength. And he tells them, and this is the great phrase, he says, verse 6, be strong and courageous. The first mention of this phrase, be strong and courageous. He's going to say it three times in chapter 31. He'll say it three times in chapter 1 of Joshua. In other words, as this book closes out and as the next book opens up, both hinge on this phrase. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. The closing theme of Deuteronomy, the opening theme of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? Because, and listen to this, it's important. Fear is to the devil what faith is to the Lord. You know, doubting is not the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. And fear is to Satan what faith is to the Lord. Fear fuels the fires of hell. Faith fuels the fire of godly passion. Fear turns our eyes from the Lord. Faith turns our eyes to the Lord. And Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. They were on the Sea of Galilee. You may recall the story. They were on the boat. And the storm came up, a great squall, and the, the boat was going to capsize. And the apostles were verily, verily freaking out as the waves crashed over the sides of the boat. They were in bad shape. And of course, Jesus, what was he doing? Sound asleep in the hold. Having a nice little cat nap, just sweetly sleeping away as this boat is going up and down and, and all around. And they were absolutely screaming in fear. And they went down and woke him up and they bring him back out. And you read the story probably a little more accurately in Mark chapter 4. And in this story, Jesus comes out and you remember he calms the seas. And what is the first thing he says to them? He says, why are you afraid? Why are you fearful? And then he says, How is it that you have no faith? Because faith and fear are opposite each other. You can't have faith when you're fearful. If you're being driven by fear, you are not in faith. However, if you're living a life of faith, fear has no hold on you. Fear and faith, these two opposites. One detracts us from God, the other attracts us to God. And so Moses says to the people and to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. The Lord's behind you, He's beside you, and He is before you. And so Moses calls them to be strong. And then he calls forward, Mr. Strong and Courageous, Joshua himself. Verse 7. Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with the people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you and He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Oh, do not fear or be dismayed. It's a great moment for Joshua and the people. Moses had been the shepherd of Israel. He now is doing something incredibly significant. He's passing the mantle. The mantle of his authority. The mantle of his leadership. Don't miss where we are because we've been studying for a long time in Deuteronomy. In fact, we've been studying for a long time with Moses ever since the beginning of the book of Exodus. We've been with this man Moses. He has been the shepherd that we've been studying under and been learning from. He's been our teacher through Leviticus and Numbers and now in Deuteronomy. Every word coming from the mouth, the teaching heart of Moses. And now suddenly a very significant thing is happening. The mantle is being passed. Moses very soon will no longer be with us and we'll be learning from a man named Joshua. A mantle is being passed. But remember, 
Whether it's Moses or Joshua, neither man is anything but the Lord. The Lord is everything. In fact, the greatest thing that Joshua becomes for us is a very poignant type in the scriptures of Jesus Christ, as as I'm very excited to show you when we get to that book. Verse 9. So Moses wrote this law. Now pause right there. Moses wrote this law. Who wrote the law? Moses did. Right? Sure? Take a sneak peek ahead at verse 24. It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete. Who wrote the law? Who? You can answer it. Moses did. Okay. I I just want to be clear about that because if all the theologians and the higher critics and the cemetery professors, seminary, and the skeptics of the word, all those who say, well, we're not really sure who wrote the Torah, if they would just read the Torah, they would find out the answer to their question. They'd save themselves a lot of time By just looking at what the Bible says itself, Moses wrote this law. Just wanted to be clear about it. So Moses wrote this law, verse 9, and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, watch this, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which He will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Well, who's going to show up for that? Well, watch. Verse 12, Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children, who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This is amazing because every seventh year, at the most wonderful time of the year for Israel, we have that song that we sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was that for Israel. This was a great celebration. But even more so, every seventh year, they celebrated bigger because all debts were canceled. And they would come in and in the middle of this vast celebration, the people had an all-Israel Bible conference. Every seven years, every man, woman, and child among them assembled to hear the reading of, I believe, the entire Torah. Genesis chapter 1 through Deuteronomy 34. The people would gather. And the conference would begin, and they would just read the Torah and go through it every seven years, as Moses prescribed in this place. Why did they do it at that time? The sabbatical year and the Feast of Tabernacles, again, it was a time of refreshing and release and restoration. It was a wonderful, joyful time. And that, my friends, is what happens when the word is heard. Refreshing comes, and restoration and joy comes with the word by the way there was another person that was invited along with the men the women and the children of all of Israel did you notice who it was it was the alien who was among them it wasn't just for the Israelites even here we see hints of God's intention that all people be blessed and saved verse 14 then the Lord said to Moses behold the time for you to die is near call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him so Moses and Joshua went 
and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. And this people will arise. You're going to lie down, Moses. And when you lie down, this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land. Into the midst of which they are going, they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us? that these evils have come upon us but I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they do for they will turn to other gods listen to this after a 40 year investment in ministry this is the result if I were Moses I probably would have said Lord I kind of wish you'd spared me that information things were looking really good and you had to tell me this is where they're going to head I'm going to leave this place and it's all going to fall apart and God says exactly what a heartbreak what an absolute tragedy and I'm not talking about Moses' heart I'm talking about the Lord's think about this Moses wouldn't have known this at all if God hadn't told him and yet, as the Bible tells us, Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What must it be like to be God and know everything? You and I get into relationships with people and have no idea where they're going. We make friends and we have no idea how in a year that friend may or may not betray us. We have no idea, literally, of the pain of the future. People say, boy, wouldn't it be great to have a time machine and go to the future? Uh Uh-uh, no, I don't want to know. If I knew then what I know now, I'm not sure if I could have gotten to now from then. God spares us graciously that knowledge, but He has it. He has it. He knows everything. Even as He is rescuing the people out of Egypt, He knows that just a matter of years later they were going to rebel against him and reject him even as Jesus hung on the cross he knew he knew the people he was dying for were going to receive him gloriously and then rebel against him horribly he knew it's awful God has already seen it all I am so thankful that I don't know everything I'm thankful that I don't even know what people say behind my back I don't want to know I don't care to know those things. I'm thankful, gang, that I don't know ahead of time the heartaches and heartbreaks and problems and and God forbid the heresies that could befall this church fellowship. All I know is what's happened in the last three years and it's glorious and it's wonderful. Even the little rough spots here and there. I don't know what's coming. I don't want to know. God knows. He's already seen it all. And in fact, back in chapter 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. God's concern is that we know what we need to know. In fact, that's what it is with God. We live on an as-needs-to-know basis. I'll let you know when you need to know. And what you need to know, I have revealed to you. And all I need to know 
is what I need to grow in faith and entrust myself to the Lord. And beyond that, I don't need to know more. And the reason I say that with such, such conviction is because God knows. And that's good enough for me. Life in the Lord is on a need-to-know basis. Now the Lord goes on to tell people, Moses and the people, what they need to know. Verse 30, chapter 31, verse 19. Now therefore, watch this, he says, write this song for yourselves. Teach it to the sons of Israel, put it on their lips, so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, that word prosperous is literally fat. When they have eaten and are satisfied and have become fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent which they are developing today before I have brought them into the land which I swore. In other words, God's saying they are already preparing to rebel. They're not even in the land yet. And they're getting ready to rebel against me today. Even as they listen to this. So Moses, I want you to write a song. Write a song. Give it to them. And so verse 22 tells us Moses wrote this song the same day. I, I love that about Moses. God says, hey Moses, do it. He does it. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't dilly-dally. He just does it. That day he wrote the song and he taught it to the sons of Israel. Listen, no Jewish person can say they didn't know what was coming. Because God told them before they ever got into the land exactly what was coming. He told them what choices they were going to make. He told them what curses would befall them. He told them everything ahead of time. It's like Jesus heading to the cross. The apostles had no reason not to know. There are at least three, possibly four different occasions in the Gospels where we see Jesus not just speak in parables but tell his apostles we're going to Jerusalem I'm going to be betrayed they're going to hand me over to the rulers and I will be crucified and on the third day I'm going to raise to life again and when it happened they were surprised I told you ahead of time what I was going to do and that's exactly what God has done with Israel and there's not a single one of the Israelites who couldn't have known ahead of time what was coming God says, Moses, I want you to write a song. Write a song, because really, sermons are forgotten. Songs are not. Songs stick, don't they? Songs teach us in a way that sermons can't. They evoke emotions. They trigger memories among us. There are still old hymns that when I start to sing the hymn, I get choked up and I can't finish. Because it transports me back to a place in time. I remember growing up, Sunday nights was singing nights. Because we didn't have a pastor. The church that my, my parents started in Southern California, we would sit around with old hymnals and we'd just sing these songs. And I remember the song I requested every week, week after week after week, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which does not move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Every time I hear the tune of that song, begin to sing that song, for me, my heart just wells up with great emotion. The people might forget Moses' 30-chapter sermon, but they're not going to forget a song. So God says, I want you to take everything that you've just taught the people, I want you to put it in a song. 
and make them learn the song. Get them to memorize it. They won't forget this song. What song? What song? You turn over to chapter 32. There it is. All of chapter 32 is the song of Moses. We're going to spend the next, not this Sunday, but the following two, maybe three Sundays, learning the song of Moses. Studying the song of Moses. Spending time in the song of Moses. It's a wonderful song. It's amazing. It's prophetic. And once again, it shows exactly what God's going to do with Israel, past, present, and future. The song. He's going to teach him the song. Verse 23. Then he commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, which either meant he didn't have parents or he was Catholic. And he said, Be strong and courageous. There it is the third time. For you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. And it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete. Who, who wrote the words of the law? Moses did. That's right. Thank you. That Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, Take this book of the law. Place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it, remain, it may remain there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? When the cat's away, assemble, verse 28, to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. And, he says, evil will befall you in the latter days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Verse 30, And Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. And again, chapter 32 gives us that song. By the way, verse 29 is, I believe, a reference to the tribulation, the time of Jacob's distress. It's called the tribulation, Revelation 6 through 19. The phrase there, the latter days, evil will befall you in the latter days, is literally Yom Akharith. We've seen this phrase before. It means the last days. Not just later on, but the days at the very end. Evil will befall them. And I think he's talking very specifically there about the tribulation period. Now listen, we're done for tonight. But there's something I don't want you to miss that we've just studied. The rest of Deuteronomy, the last three chapters of this amazing book, are chapter 32, the Song of Moses. And then chapter 33, the blessing of Moses, where he will, very much like Jacob at the end of Genesis, he will now bless each one of the tribes of Israel. That's chapter 33. Chapter 34 will then be the death of Moses. The sermon's over. We'll sing the song, see the blessing, we'll watch the death, and then we'll be through. But tonight, as Moses finished out his sermon in chapter 31... We've seen the critical passing of a mantle, and I paused to mention that a few minutes ago, the passing of the mantle from one to another. And there is dramatic significance in this that we don't want to lose here that ties into a New Testament verse, John 1.17. I'll read in just a moment. The passing of the mantle from Moses to Joshua. The reason it's so significant is Moses will not go into the promised land. He can't go in. 
part of the reason Moses can't go, go in is because he is a picture of the law. He is a type of the law. And the law cannot get you into the promised land. The law won't get you there. Moses can't take you in. Only Joshua can take you into the promised land. Only Joshua, who is a type, part and parcel of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. He's a a picture of Jesus. Only Yeshua can take you into the promised land. Law can't do it. Only grace can. Grace and truth are realized through Jesus. Moses can't get us in. Only Joshua, only Yeshua can take us into the promise. Can take us into salvation. Only Jesus. And Jesus, it's you we pray to tonight and we thank you for the words of Moses. Thank you, Father, for the patience of my brothers and sisters tonight to go through this passage. I know it's a lot to digest. I pray that that digestion can take place over the next several days. But Lord, we just praise you for your word. It's an awesome, awesome word. And we thank you for loving us so much that as Les said earlier, quoting your words, Jesus, that you love, so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's this life we seek and this life we desire to give. Jesus, encompass all that we do and draw us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.